what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Glenn, Pat, it's time for new ads. It is time for new ads. They have new sponsors. But we've also got some remaining ones as of well course. that we've got to bless them. So it turns out we're actually behind because people jumped into our Patreon and sent us much money and we didn't realize. Until they said, oh, what's happening? Yeah. Hey, where's our ads? Yeah. Here it is. We're doing it. You know where you should get dog training equipment in North America now? Who? Mojo Dog Co. Mojo Dog Co. Yeah, mojodogco.com mm. is a website. There's a real store. It's in Chicago. Yep. But it's a website you can totally go to and they pretty much sell everything. They've got mills. They've got training gear. They've got apparel. There's food. There's dog beds. Like it's a legit store. I've and been you've there. been there. I've you? been there, yeah. Yeah, I, you've I, witnessed I, it firsthand. You've I, smelt um, the odors. You've tasted the food. You've run on the mills. I committed theft. I stole a tub. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was allowed to take it. Too late now. I've got it. I, yeah. I, I just trained with it today. So basically he's paying us Patreon money for you to steal his toys. Yeah. It's okay. a it's a great Klein tug. It's fantastic. A Klein tug? Yeah. Oh, you know who else sells a Klein tug? Uh, who? The Buffhead. The OG Buffhead. Really? Yes, he does. He does. Yeah. He, he, in fact, he does. I got from the Buffhead a Klein flirt pole which all the dogs favour over all the other ones. Really? Yes. They you like shouldn't that. allow toy preferences, Len. <laughs> <laughs> they, I, I don't. They do. They choose what they want. We have two places that you could get dog training equipment. Yes. MojoDogCode.com. Yeah, in North America. Yeah. And yep. Einzawiener. Yep. Dot Buffhead. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you, know what, you know what's a really cool product? The Rowdy Hound dog kennel. It's the kennel that attaches, like it's a crate that attaches to your motorcycle. Yeah. So you can take your dog anywhere that you're traveling if you own a motorcycle and yep. you want to take your dog with you. If safely, I owned a motorcycle, safely, if safely. I owned a motorcycle or a dog that wanted to ride one, yep. I would 100% get one. I own a motorcycle. You should get one. I should get one. You should get one. I can see you a little Frenchie hanging yep. off the back of your motorbike. Mm. Yeah, I think that Mando would probably cause me to come off my bike. He yeah. would probably rock around like crazy on yeah. that thing. But yeah, a little, little dog like what George Kittridge does, mm-hmm. who's a wonderful bloke and a dear friend of ours. Sponsor of the show. Sponsor of the show. And he takes his little blue healer, which mm-hmm. is an Australian dog. Mm-hmm. And George has been out here in Australia. He knows all about Australia. He stayed mm-hmm. in Australia. He's done it all. Mm-hmm. But he actually takes his little blue healer. And he rides her all around the state and he teaches other people how to do it as well with their dogs. So not only does he sell the product, but he trains people on how to use it as well. That's great. It is. You know, he should get everybody to do a big road trip up to Canada. Yeah. You know what they could do in Canada? What's that? Go to Dan Croft. Ah, Dan Croft. Geez, they could watch a puppy class there, couldn't they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they're doing seminars as well. Really? Yeah, got seminars, they've got teaching, they've got education. But as I spoke to Daniel, who runs Dan Croft, Mm -hmm. he was telling me all about their amazing puppy classes and they do some kick-ass social media. Yeah, they do. They've got some pretty extreme type of breeds over there that they've got them all under perfect control. Like all these American staffies, they've got all these bull breeds that people complain about, whinge about and say they can't be trained. And Mm -hmm. Dan Croft has them doing not only 
beautiful stays, but they also have them on balls. Mm. So they have the dog, Incredible. you know, like inside a tyre and the dog's doing beautiful drop stays while they're at peace and at harmony and somebody's walking around, all the owners are there with the dogs, they're having a great time. Incredible. Yeah. Oh, I bet those dogs are well conditioned and healthy. Yep. Yeah. How would they do that? Probably the best way is to get yourself some canine suitacles. Have you been using it? I have actually. No shit. Like jokes aside, Remy was circling the drain. He was in bad shape. And yeah. I said to Narelle, hey, I want to try and get him back in condition, mm. see how much longer I can get from him. Because like the mind is willing, but the body is weak. Yep. And so she hooked me up with all the right things and he's a million times better. In fact, he's actually better than he has been in you know probably two years. And you did a really cool social media content for Narelle the other day, which he really appreciated. I make sweet reels, bro. You do. Yep. You are pretty good with your reels. Again, all jokes aside, I'm not just saying this because Narelle's my wife. I make this very clear, but she what? Is, she's actually a genius with that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. When other people are sort of relaxing and kicking back, I know people are busy and they've got things to do, but Narelle reads white papers. She's doing everything. She's always looking how she can improve the standards in a dog's life. So, like, she actually amazes me. She's mm. very, very industrious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Mojo Dog Co. Yep. Einz a wiener. Einz a wiener. Mm-hmm. Rowdy Hound. Rowdy Hound. Dan, Dan Croft. Canonceuticals. Yep. Yep. Thank you all very, very much. You guys sponsor the show. If you want to support the show, support them. Yes. They're the place to get the gear. Yeah. And if you get into Patreon and you tick that box, just know that we don't check that very often. <laughs> yeah, so you've got to tell <laughs> you us. You've got you to, you, you you got got to shoot us a message. Yeah, it's fine for you to let us know. We really appreciate you. We'd started off our shows talking about some of our new attributes, things that we've got. Yeah. And we would never have got that without Patreon support. It's That's Patreon fine. that pays our bills. All right. Enjoy the show. And our sponsors. Enjoy the sponsors. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. We're finally back together. We are. We did it. Nothing can keep us apart. (laughs) (laughs) let's hook in we've got the questions why not we carry on that we've got like a thousand episodes worth of questions here that since we're two an episode as per last time yeah all right let's go straight in george nicholas Mm -hmm. says i've found that clients can't be trusted to use e-collars properly even when taught and shown how so i no longer recommend them i still use them myself for certain applications have you also found this to be the case would you trust an everyday dog owner with an e-collar? There were some statistics that came out quite some time ago about people who drive vehicles. Even comedians used to joke about it on their comedy shows and so forth about how most people who drive vehicles were surveyed and 90% of people believe they're above average mm. when they're actually not, they're below average. Real-time audits were done on this and car drivers, if they were tested again for their license, they wouldn't pass. They were that bad at driving their car. They were just making common everyday errors. It's the same thing that I find with a lot of people with these type of things is they just don't understand them well enough. They haven't been shown them well enough. And usually that is evident of whoever mentored them or coached them in the use of using it. It also is attributed to what we were talking about before in the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve. Because if you learn something and 24 hours later, if you don't revise that material, half of it is gone. Mm. One week, 90% is gone. It's no wonder that people don't use these tools correctly because they've forgotten how to use them correctly because they put it on the bench 
The dog has pissed them off one week later. They've decided to put it on and they've decided to go to town on the dog with it. And I think pretty sure the trainer told me to press this button and do this. This is why, personally me, I would like to see them, otherwise they'll be banned. I would like to see them a bit more tightly regulated where people who are going to use them, general public people who are going to use them, should do at least a day-long course, if not a weekend course, with an approved and accredited and somebody who is learned in the use of how to use remote trainers, such as yourself. So they go along to a trainer like that, they learn how to use it properly, and then there is some form of auditing system in place, like there is for gun owners, okay, in Australia certainly. Whereas you have to have some form of backup and research to say, I'm at least keeping ahead of the curve by learning about this. Again, it's no wonder people forget about it because in most situations, and I take it this listener who's put this question is probably from America, there is no real law around it in some states and in some countries. They're just allowed to have it. It's part of their constitutional rights. They're allowed to have it. There is no checkup. There's no care factor about it. You can buy it at, you know, in a department store and take it home and literally slap it on the dog and go for your life. Those sort of things always concern me. These are the reasons why tools get banned is because there's just not enough strength and not enough reinforcement from that end. I, like you, I'm cautious about over-regulating this. I'm cautious about the government getting involved in it. The government just do a colossal fuck-up of everything Mm. because eventually they just ban it. You have to understand, and I'm not going to get on a soapbox about governments because I've done this so many times, but you have to understand the whole concept of a government is to keep themselves in their job. And by keeping themselves in their job, they've got to do what's popular. What's popular isn't always what's right. They get their marketing people to look at what will make me look better in the public eye. What decisions will I make will make me stand out as a politician. And that's what they will do. The problem with remote trainers and prong collars and all these sort of things is now there's so much misinformation out there. Now there's so much public opinion about what they are when in fact they're not that but it's not as popular as we would like to believe. And we are a very minoritized group of people. Mm. The more people who keep fucking these things up, the more it plays into the hands and then it becomes the devil's advocate of here is another group of people who hate the use of these because they're being misused. That's my long form of looking into it is, yes, there is a lot of public people out there who won't use it right because they're just not following up and or the person who is selling them the device is either made themselves too expensive to be able to follow up with or doesn't care enough to follow up with it. Mm. Those are the things that I'm always cautious of. Over my term of being a dog trainer and, and certainly listening and reading comments and being involved in actual public marches where I have marched for the rights to be able to do these sort of things in group forums and so forth, these are the areas where I consistently see a gray area or a problem area evolving. What's the answer to that? The answer to that is regulating it. If you're going to use it, there needs to be some form of regulation. I just don't see a way around that. And I know this is talking in circles, but yes, I know of the concerns of my colleagues and my friends in the industry who say, yeah, but if we regulate it, who regulates it? Who becomes the watcher? You and I have had these conversations on a regular occurrence They're things that scare me. They're things that do keep me up at night. They're causes for concern in the industry. Mm. But 
doing nothing about it is even worse because it will deteriorate to a point where somebody will step in in government and just say, you're not allowed to use these anymore, too bad, mm. which is what they did in Queensland. Mm. With the prongs. With the prongs. So George says, I've found that clients can't be trusted to use an e-collar properly, even when taught and shown. He then says he uses them himself. He's not any e-collar. Have we found this to be the case? And would you trust an everyday dog owner with an e-collar? So like I would answer that directly in saying that here in New South Wales, no. In my experience training just random pet dogs in people's homes, you know, behavior modification and stuff, very often an e-collar is not a necessary tool because often the dogs are on leash. Yep. Right. And so more often than not, the the issues that we face with those kind of dogs can be fixed with another tool. Just now, conventional you do need tools. Tool. Yeah. Hmm. The majority, the only people I formally teach to use e-collars here and have the remote in my hand and do it are police and military who have the permission to do that in this state. Yep. So the very short answer to your question, George, is no. The average pet dog owner, I don't do that. And not because I don't trust them, but it's just not available to me. Mm. That's just not within my repertoire of things to do. I teach lots of people how to use e-collars and the majority of those people are, if not professionals with their dog, i.e. working with that dog, are sport dog enthusiasts and stuff like that, right? They're dog trainers of a sort, if not professionals. But what I'll say is that my experience is actually the opposite because very often I've been to people's place. And now here in New South Wales, the fact that e-collars are illegal is not a particularly well-known thing. I've had heaps of clients that have had an e-collar. When I turn up to their house and they're like, oh, we bought this, but we don't know how to use it. And they've got me around to do that. And I'm like, well, actually you can't, right? Like it's illegal. And I've had actually multiple of those clients, I can name three or I won't name them, but I can think of three that are police Mm -hmm. and had no idea that they had an illegal e-collar because they, unless you're into reading the legislation, easily available. Yeah. How would Mm -hmm. you know? Right. Mm -hmm. No big deal. So my experience is actually my personal lived experience. Now I'm, I'm fully aware that lots of other shit goes on, but my interactions with people has been that I very rarely, if ever, have seen someone using an e-collar in a way that I was like, oh, you have to stop immediately because you are a brutal person doing a brutal thing. I've never experienced that. More often than not, when I have, you know, worked with someone who already has an e-collar in this state or when I've, you know, been elsewhere and people want me to teach them, more often than not, people don't use the e-collar enough. They don't use it at a high enough level. Now, there's issues that come of that. You know, that's not a good thing. Mm. But I just don't think that too many people who care about their dog enough to want to train it rather than just get rid of it are slapping on a collar and lighting the dog up. I think that's a myth. I've never seen it. In my life, I've never seen it. It doesn't exist like it used to. Sure. I'm happy to accept that. Mm. The people who I do see who slap it on a dog and light it up are doing stock proofing and it works Mm. totally, right? I was in a a forum. I'm not in it anymore, but I was in a, a couple of the sort of pig dog forums because I had an interest in learning about this kind of thing, right? And I think I entered the forum. I can't remember what it was called, but it was an Australian one. And I went into it because I was interested in the that Garmin tracking collars and I wanted some feedback on people that use them. It's specifically because they're actually illegal because of the frequency they use in Australia. And Garmin just pay the fee. Mm. I'm told that Garmin just pay the fine. They're like, there's enough money in selling these things that will pay the fine for using an illegal frequency. It's a military frequency. Anyway, the advice in those groups for stock proofing is they call it a zap collar. They don't fuck around. These are these are people who are not like, there's no one in that group. And there were thousands of people. There's no one in there that's pussyfooting around. These are people that go hunting with their dogs, their pig dogs. 
but they can't have their dogs chasing kangaroos. They can't have their dogs hitting livestock. And they would say like the most crude training, like terrible. Me as a dog trainer reading it, just like wincing as I'm reading. And they'd say, well, you just put the collar on the dog. You take the dog to the stock, zap him. He'll react. Don't take him away. Let him recover. Bring him closer to the stock. He'll react, zap him. And then that's probably it. That's the advice given in Mm. the group. And that's what people are doing. But then you can go through that group and see that they've all got stock-proof dogs. And those dogs then are out doing the Lord's work, cleaning up the pigs. And like I get a lot of people don't like pig hunting or whatever, but in Australia, we don't have pig hunters. We're fucked. Like our food supply will be diminished. We'll be overrun by wild pigs. And and that's not exaggerating. They Mm. are a very, very important part of our ecosystem. Yeah, they breed prolifically. Yeah, but the Mm. people who hunt those pigs for fun – are a very important part of our food system. We need people to be doing that. Yep. Anyway, like, yes, I don't think that that's particularly elegant use of an e-collar and I don't think that's particularly elegant advice and people are sourcing that advice from a Facebook group. However, there's plenty of video in that group of people doing it and then showing the results and the results are exactly what they wanted and the dog goes through a very short period of discomfort which you and I would say, hey, that's terrible training. Like, I don't approve of but that. No, but no, it's not. It's essential training. And before we go any further with that, I need to interrupt by saying I did exactly that for a German Shepherd that was killing a lady's. She was a, a peacock breeder. Her pedigree line, working line German Shepherd, was just running past and chopping the heads off peacocks. And she said, if you can't fix it, I will shoot the dog. Yeah. And I said, I can fix it. There's going to be a little bit of time and a little bit of pain involved in this. But it was exactly that. It was pure positive punishment, making him absolutely deter from going anywhere near the peacocks. Yeah. Which in six weeks, we had him completely convinced that peacocks were electric and don't go anywhere near them. Yeah. Even to the point where if he was eating and they came over to peck at his food, he'd get up and walk away from them. Yeah. Whereas before he would have killed every single one of them. Yeah. And so everybody carries on. Everybody won and that dog lived to a ripe old age and died on the veranda. Yeah. And he probably had a very horrible 10 minutes of his life that he's totally forgotten about. 10 minutes at a time. 10 minutes at a time and limited at that. Yeah. You know, actually, if you really want to be more precise about it, you probably had a very horrible 0.5 of a second. Yeah, exactly Two right. or three times. Yeah. <laughs> right? So the reality is I think that most people, when they you know, use an e-collar uneducated, more often than not what they're actually doing is trying to stop some sort of behavior and they either go too high once and the dog gets the message and maybe even gets shut down in that moment and sort of cuts its drive and limits itself in those circumstances again. And again, I'm not saying that's good. I'm definitely not saying that that is something that I condone or want to happen more or all the caveats you can imagine me saying, I don't like it, Mm. but it's not that bad, Mm. right? And the alternative for most people is they get rid of the dog and the dog goes into rescue and spends its life in a cage or gets green dream the next day. You know, like that's the reality of it for a lot of people. And and I think that's what gets overlooked in that space. Mm. I think that, you know, we're all in the dog training space. We're all, you know, big brands, right? Like if it's not a dog tra or an e-collar technologies or a Garmin or Martin system collar, like all of us, like I don't want to know it because people buy these shitty ones off of Amazon that cost 25 bucks. They output whatever they, you know, whatever, like it randomly outputs. Yep. Now they're junk and I would never use one. You would never use one. I would never recommend anybody use one, but they're probably the ones that are getting used the most, right? Well, they're cheap and they're accessible. Exactly. And if you've got an issue with that, like most of the time when people have 
a serious issue with their dog and they're a person who's not going to call a trainer, but they're going to try and fix it themselves. It's usually some sort of prey based thing. We're often the not it, here in Australia. We see it all the time with Kelpies that chase bikes. Yep. A lot of the farm bred Kelpies that never get to work any sheep. They never get to actually herd anything. They never get to push anything around. Watching a push bike spoke spin just lights them up and they yep. can't help but chase it. And a lot of people then will just whack an e-collar on the dog. They'll blast it and the dog gets the message and they'll probably have to do that every three, two or three years. That behavior will resurface and they'll redo it. The dog will have another experience and it'll come back. Now, again, I'm not condoning that, but that's just the reality of what actually happens. And I've met loads of people that have done exactly that without knowing any better before they've had some other issue with the dog and then you know, call me or another trainer or whatever, we come around and then you end up finding out that is what's happened in the past. Mm. And that's often not what they're calling for. They're calling for some other reason, right? Like that's totally unrelated. So my personal experience is that I think that more often than not, we do sort of imagine suffering that isn't necessarily there. I think that it's very rare. I can't think of a single case that I know of where somebody has really fucked up a dog with an e-collar that I've personally seen. Like you hear about them, right? But I've never personally seen it and I've never, never seen it in the case of somebody who didn't know any better. Have you experienced sympathetic pain when you see somebody like hit their nuts on a, like the skateboarder who goes railing down a rail yeah. and then they slip and they get cracked between the legs yeah. and automatically you feel that pain? Yeah. Well, there's a myriad of people who do that thinking about dogs getting lit up by remote trainers. Yeah. Like they feel it, what they imagine it to be, and then they automatically draw a conclusion to this is what it is mm. because I can sympathetically feel this through my system. That's what it's got to be. It also doesn't help when you're watching, you know, I've watched videos of kids zapping themselves on YouTube clips for fun where they can't unbuckle the collar fast enough. So there's somebody sitting there with a yeah. remote trainer, like frying them while they're screaming and jumping around and so forth. And then people go, well, there you go. That's what people do to dogs. No, that's what dickheads do to their mates who yeah. think it's hilarious and want to make 15 minutes of fame on YouTube we did an episode a while ago that 15 million people will watch that yeah. and be horrified by it yeah. and then automatically believe that's what trainers do to dogs when in fact it's it's almost polar opposites of that. But I'll tell you a story. Many years ago, I know that we, I, we, I don't know if I've told this exact story, but it was part thereof. But many years ago, I met a guy called Randy Clifton who invented simunition, right? Yes. He, mm. he was a DEA agent, was involved in a fatal shooting got pushed sideways to the FBI school because the same school or was at the time. I'm not sure if it still is. And he basically was one of the early pioneers or the pioneers of reality-based training, scenario-based training, and was one of the early inventors of Simunition. Mm. I met him because he was pitching a new product because the company that made Simunition were happy with it, didn't want to change it. And he'd made a new thing called Force on Force. So for people who don't understand, Simunition is they're real bullets that's fired out of a real gun, but it's paintball. Mm. So you, you, you change out your barrel and you change out your bolt. And so your actual gun that feels normal, everything like feels like normal in your hands, use not like normal-ish magazines. It all feels very real, but it's paintball, all right? And it has a range of about seven meters, hurts like shit, but is non-lethal. He invented that and then wanted to change it because one of the things like 
like simulation, one of the things that you always do is you freeze it, right, so that it hurts more. <laughs> um, and so like his new thing was made of glycerin yep. and so it couldn't be frozen and the, the projectile had a slightly different shaped head so, you know, worked differently and it was a non-lead-based round because there's big issues within the military spaces about use of lead, mm-hmm. especially in indoor firing ranges. There's massive lead contaminant issues. I remember when I first got my first ever lead contaminant brief, and it was like, this is the effects of lead poisoning. Like you imagine lead poisoning, you know, most people think of it like, oh, it's acute kind of poisoning. Like you die of lead poisoning. But what happens is you ingest lead. Your body doesn't really know what to do with it. It goes into your bloodstream and then essentially it looks enough like calcium that your body puts it into your bones. And so it kind of it gets stuck inside of you, like mm. small lead fragments. And, um, you know, causes a lot of long-term health issues. And I remember the guy explaining it to us was this angry old warrant officer and he explained every angry old warrant officer. (laughs) (laughs) It's like this is the long-term effects of lead poisoning is this. And when I was in the tag, because we do a lot of indoor shooting, we used to have to get a blood test every month and there was like an acceptable lead level that you had to be within. And if you went above a certain amount, you weren't allowed in the range until you went below. Mm. Um, Like, And some people absorb it differently. Like there was one guy – I won't say his name's still in, but he he was like, well, like, do you eat the fucking, like, what? Well, why are your lead levels so high? Like, he was only ever allowed in the range to do his shooting and then he had to leave, like, because his body just absorbed the lead. Anyway, so the new Force on Force is a lead-free round. It's Couldn't not, they it's get not him propelled. to wear a face mask? doesn't work. It's, it's, um, it's absorbed through his skin. Yeah. Mm. So anyway, Randy Clifton and reality-based training, one of the things that he's talked about was how when you do these scenario-based stuff, you are often told like you're shot, you're out of the fight. And then because you're creating a scenario of like, okay, now there's somebody who's out and the medic has to deal with them and you're creating that problem for the fight. But what happens is you're having it programmed into you that you're shot, you're out. And what happens in training, it's like, oh, you get told you're shot and people go, oh, okay, I'll sit here and wait for the medic to come in. Like I'm out, right? But like then people get shot and they're like, oh, I'm out. And it's like, no, fuck, you have to fight. Like yep. you're in a fucking gunfight. You have to put up with that. You have to keep fighting and win the fight and then someone will help you. Mm. I've spoke about it before. One of my good friends got shot in the femur, obliterated his femur. He took another six rounds, four in the chest, two in the helmet that were in his plate. The one that went through his femur actually then went into his abdomen and cut his abdomen to pieces. So he was stuck on the ground. He couldn't move. Yep. He called his own Kazovac in because he's like, well, I've got to do something, right? Like he was the team commander. His team just left him. They had to go and win the fight. Mm. So he called in his own nine-liner. He was like, well, I've got to do something here, right? So like you don't just get to give up. Anyway, all that is an e-collar story because I was long before I was into dogs when I met Randy. And he was like, one thing you need to practice is turning off pain via action. Now, I didn't know anything about dog training at the time. I was a young digger, but it was negative reinforcement. And Mm. what we used to do is we would do these shooting drills where you would light someone up with an e-collar. We used to wear these e-collars on our legs that we bought, you know, like exact off like eBay. It was no Amazon at the time, right? We bought them off eBay and they were the shittiest junkest e-collars and there were no levels. You just hit the button and it blasted you. And sometimes it hurt like fuck. And sometimes it hardly hurt at all. Yep. And we would laugh hysterically because you do these shooting drills where like you'd be far and moving, you'd be doing whatever, some kind of scenario. And whoever was running the practice would just light one of you up. And the only way they would stop is by you getting rounds down range. So we were drilling into ourselves that pain compliance, like drives us to action. It was very sort of Nepo before I knew anything about it. Right. Mm. We used to fuck around with e-collars all the time like that, blast each other as hard as we could. And mm. it was hilarious. And we all had a good time doing it. The beauty of an e-collar at what we were 
the reason we were using that then is that you can bring on a lot of pain with zero injury. The moment it stops, it stops. Yep. Exactly like all TENS machines and all that kind of stuff. So yes, you can create inhibitions, but we were driving action. We would usually do it like when someone got like a stoppage and it would be until you get your gun going, you're in horrendous pain. Don't give into the pain. Don't try and turn it off. The only way is action. You have to get back into the fight and we're drilling that into ourselves. Mm. The point is that people fuck around with e-collars and play with them all the time and they punch out these random amounts. Yes, it can hurt. It can hurt a lot. But the pain is over the moment that the button is relieved. Mm. And you can create superstitious things. Like you can psychologically fuck someone up for sure. And with a dog, you can psychologically fuck up a dog with an e-collar. Yep. But you can't injure them. That That's impossible, mm. right? Like you, they won't be injured. They can't be burnt. All the things that people say, it can't happen. You can fuck them up. Like I'm not saying that e-collars are without risk. Of course they are. Yep. But so when you're going to talk about like somebody who random Jono who decides he's going to fix the problem himself because he's got a Kelpie that's chasing bikes and is dangerous because it's either going to bite the bike and like have its jaw ripped off if it goes through the spokes and flip the person off the bike. It's a mm. fucking dangerous situation. Absolutely. Terrible. Right. And where you're walking these dogs, you're walking them on footpaths where people are going to ride the bike past you. So like, it's not like you can say, well, don't just avoid it and keep the dog on leash. Like even on leash, that's going to happen. It doesn't end there either because then council get involved and there's exactly. fines. Like it just prolongs into more misery. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So my point is that even used terribly in mm. the worst way with the shittiest e-collar, it can fix the issue in a way that is better than all the others. Yep. Because there is no way the dog can be injured. Mm. That you can create the inhibition. And yes, it's totally possible that you create a situation where the dog no one, like no wants to go to that place. You can create weird superstitions. Of course, the dog can avoid having the collar put on and that could translate to other collars. There's risk. Of yes. course there is. But- for the most part, I've seen people do that without any guidance from anybody else. Like I've heard of it and it works for the most part. And so it's not elegant. It's not great training. You and I wouldn't do the same, but it it's an average Jono with no guidance fixing a problem with his dog that mm. maybe he couldn't afford to fix any other way or wouldn't be interested in fixing any other way. So my answer to your question is, no, I don't use e-collars on average dogs because I don't have cause for it, but also I don't really deal with that anymore. Mm. The majority of the people I teach use an e-collar are professional users, of professional trainers of dogs, and I, I don't have concern with that. In fact, my experience has been most people don't use it as much as perhaps they should. That's been my lived experience. Yep. All those people are still driving cars. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Anything else to add on that? No, not really. I think that was covered quite extensively. On the stock proofing, one thing I've always wanted to point out, and like I won't say his name because I don't want to resurface this for him and get him into more bullshit, but the video of the gentleman that punches the kangaroo that went around, mm -hmm. remember that? Yes, I do. We were talking about it yesterday. Really? Yes. I feel like a beautiful opportunity was missed to point out how incredibly well-trained his dog was. Oh, yeah. In that the dog- Was which, in a headlock by a full yeah. giant red kangaroo yeah. male. And that dog could have minced that kangaroo yep. in a second, but you're not allowed to do that. Your dogs are not allowed to bite kangaroos in Australia. And the kangaroo could have disemboweled the dog. That yep. was a terrible standoff situation. But I think that it gets overlooked and nobody talked about it enough when that was popular is that that dog was like, oh, okay, in spite of the fact that I could mince you- I'm not allowed to. I'm going to just wait mm. because daddy will come over and rescue me. Yep. And I'll just stand here with my head in a headlock and be like, oh, okay, I'll wait for someone to come and rescue me. I've got myself in a shitty situation. Mm. Did just wait. Yep. The gentleman goes over and then has to defend himself from the kangaroo that could have like disemboweled him. Yep. Read the kangaroo perfectly, knew that it was going to attack, 
de-escalated the situation in the perfect way. Everybody walks away safe. Yep. That is what was missed in that opportunity to point out. The difficulty with the online circus is everybody takes away what they want to. Yep. It's all based on your interpretation of your education, your background, your belief, your mental stability. There are so many things at play there and that is always what you're going to be judged by. It's not just people who think like you and me. It's people who have polar opposites of thinking. It's people who have extreme levels of thinking up and down, left and right, all over the place. That's the issue for all of us. And that, you know, getting back to my original and regulated rant on governments is I think actual governments like these sort of things because they think this is the circus that I command. There's an opportunity. And there's opportunity. Yeah. Tracy says, in the horse training world, we have a word. Which Tracy? I intentionally didn't say her last name because I don't know how to say it. Tracy Rakic, R-A-C-I-C-H. How would you pronounce that? Rakic? Rakic or Rakic. Rakic. Yeah. Sorry, Tracy. Yeah. In the horse training world, we have a word, feel, as in a person has amazing feel on a horse. I like this topic. It's basically a natural understanding of timing, intensity, and instinct with an animal. Some say it's impossible to teach, but it can be improved and developed if you aren't blessed with it. I'd love to hear about the idea of feel with dog training, how it can be developed and improved. Thank you. I entirely agree. I think that there is a lot of people who have a natural tenacity with animals over most other people. But I believe that the reason that happens, it's not that they're genetically gifted or, you know, like they have superpowers or anything extreme. I think it's just that they pay more attention to detail and they want to do it as well. Mm. So there is a, I think there's a lot of internal and external forces all coming together to complement the ability of that person to be more in line with animals. Some people just don't like animals. Do you know that fundamentally there is a lot more people who don't like dogs than people that do like dogs? Really? There's, there's an extreme amount of people who hate dogs. Yeah, but we think there's more that oh, dislike I think there are, dogs than well, like. There's a lot of people who don't like dogs, mate. Yeah, but do you really think it's more than like? You reckon yeah. more than yeah. 50% of people don't like dogs? Yep. I reckon there's a huge amount of people out there who don't like dogs. You keep saying huge amount. I agree that there's a huge amount. There's 7 yeah. billion people. But do you think more people dislike dogs than like dogs? If we start bringing religion into it and everything like that, then yes. What about in just the Western world? In the Western world, no, that would be overwhelmingly like dogs. Okay, sure. Okay, I'm with you yeah. now. I'm okay. with you. Okay. But culturally, people we're likely to encounter – Mostly like dogs. Yeah, but we're also, don't forget we're traveling in those groups and we're attracting that type of group as well. Yeah, but I'm talking like if you're in the Middle East, yeah, yeah, you're going to have more people that don't like dogs than do. Yeah. In regards to, let's talk about the people who like dogs. Out of a very small percentage of them, then we get into the amount of people who understand dogs. Mm. People might like dogs and non-offensively, but I see more of these type of people than most other people who walk the street because- I'm around people and their dogs all the time. Now, these are people who like dogs. They've got a dog. In, let's say, on average, you've got a husband and wife. The husband might really like the dog and the wife might not really care about the dog but only cares about the dog because the husband or vice versa in that family. doesn't matter what the relationship is. Somebody will like that dog more than the other person. But now we're getting into understanding the dog or understanding animal behavior in general. That's why people have a better feel for horses, dogs, cats, whatever it is, is because 
not only do they really like the animal, but they're invested in understanding them as well. Mm. So for me, like I said before the other day, which someone nicely quoted me on Instagram, I felt, you know, I'm repeating something I said, I, I felt incompleteness in myself. I didn't feel like a normal person that liked things that everybody else seemed to like. I had to fake my way through liking sports to pretend to fit in with people. As a kid, you know, it was very difficult because I didn't really care about footy or cricket the same way other kids did. Go sports team. I didn't, but I just didn't, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. and I had to pretend to. Yeah. It didn't matter to me the way it did with everybody else. Everybody was so tribalized in that sort of thing. But animals, I loved animals. Mm-hmm. A treat for me when I was a kid was going to my uncle's farm in country Victoria and getting to hang out and follow him around and go and get the eggs from the chickens and watch the dogs rounding up the livestock. And so that for me was just amazing. I love that sort of stuff. I could I could have survived on that all the time. Mm. So I guess I had a better feeling and understanding and empathy for dogs. And my uncle used to say that to me a lot when I was a kid. He said, you have a really good feeling. He used to watch me walking with these dogs and so forth. He said, you have a really good feeling for dogs. I wasn't really a horse person. I don't really get horses. I'm a little intimidated with them. I had a bad experience when I was a kid. I can ride them and be on them and so forth. It's not that I won't touch a horse or go with them. I just don't understand them like seasoned horse people do. Mm -hmm. If you watch the TV show Yellowstone, it's very much about cowboys and their relationship with their horses and so forth. And you get to see people who are real-time, exceptionally great horse trainers training their horses. You've probably seen it, right? Mm. Marvellous stuff. Those type of people, they love their horse. They really are invested in learning everything they can about their horse. And it means a lot to them to be and exist in that world where they're sharing their life with the horse. And dog people are the same. The best people that I know who really connect well and seem to have that feeling that other people don't have is it's very important to them. It's not just something that they like doing just as a bit of kudos. Most times I, when I watch trainers working with dogs, they get lost in this is about me than it's about all of it. Mm. It's not for them. It's not about the entirety of the picture. It's about bringing spotlight to them. They're very much focused on, I was deprived somewhere in my life. And this is a great way to focus the spotlight back on me. You can see those type of people when you know what you're looking for, they stand out exponentially. When you see somebody who has a feeling for an animal, it's not about making the animal exceptionally flashy or anything all the time. It's about having a connection with that animal that seems almost supernatural. And that's why you can become a snake oil salesman through it because you can trick people into believing that you have this telepathy or this exceptional gift. I think it's just something that you've been focused on. And as I said before, it's that you have a stronger desire than the average man or woman to want to be involved in that animal's life. Mm. Most of the people that I know that have worked in this business in doing pet care or daycare or training, when I see somebody who stands out, it really means something to them. They have a good focus. Not only are they focused with it, it's important to them. When you listen to conversations about it, they can't explain why they have such a good feeling with the dog, but you just know it's very important to them that it actually exists and having those animals in their life. It's not something that's a burden to them. It's not something that they feel this is just a job. For them, it's this is my career. This Mm. is what I want to do. A lot of people have that desire with wanting to be a parent. See, for me, it doesn't exist. I don't have that paternal instinct in me. I just don't have it. It doesn't mean I don't like children. 
kids are fun. I've got nieces. I've always loved having jokes and fun with them. And they're beautiful. I've watched them grow up. I'm going down to Melbourne to watch one of them getting married soon. And then funnily enough, a couple of months later, another one up in Ely Beach. And I've really loved their life. I've loved watching your kids grow up, even though I've little to do with them. And friends' children, I've, you know, enjoyed jokes and fun and games with them and so forth like that. But I don't have a paternal instinct. It's Mm. not important to me to do it. So I don't feel the same way that parents do about their children sometimes where it's life-changing for them. Mm. I've listened to you talking about Rip and, you know, watched you agonise over even that short time that Axel was in hospital and how painful that was for you and Jane to go through. But I see how it changed you as a man and as a person Mm. becoming a dad. Yeah. You know, I knew you slightly before Rip was born and I known you after Rip was born. It doesn't mean that you changed dramatically and became this radically different person, Mm. but I did see changes in you and noticed. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, and but, but I've seen that happen to other people. But I see people in the dog world that they have those changes as well. Well, it becomes different for them. Sometimes their family members are absolutely horrified, outraged and disgusted, as were some of mine, about how important dogs were for me because they're my life. I can't imagine not having dogs in my life and around my life. Like the shit that Narelle and I have to put up with living, you know, this is our 13th year of living on site. Every Christmas, every new year, it's constantly bunkering down and watching all these dogs out here. But to be honest, it's not a problem for me. Yeah, yeah. It's not a problem for me when I go out there and I'm dealing with these dogs. So again, very long format from me about what I observe in other people about their dogs. I don't believe it's supernatural. I believe that it's very important to the individual. Mm. I agree with all that. I think that there is one extra layer to that that I would point out is I have met some people and usually they're the very best trainers, but they're often not great with people and they're not very good at, they're not good teachers very often. Mm who are just exceptional with a dog and can train a dog with clarity and precision that uh, I and most people can't. And usually that is just like they can read the dog better than anybody else. And like you can be as into it as you want. There's plenty of people who like fit in the category of just you just said who are into it, it's important to them, but they can't read a dog for shit and Mm. they're not great trainers. There's plenty of people who go into that category. Certainly before I put in the work to educate myself, I'd I'd say I was one of them. Like I was very into dogs, loved spending time with them, but didn't really know how to read one beyond the very obvious, right? Yeah, but we're getting into trainer territory now, not into feeling. Yeah, but that's what I mean. Mm. So I think, but some of the people who I've observed and I've had them as clients because Mm. they needed an issue fixed and like they didn't realize how good a dog trainers they were. But then when you see the way that they live with their dog and stuff, you see like, oh, you're one of those. And I've had people I've trained with Mm. that, just have exactly as Tracy says, a feel. Bart actually does this thing. He see, he calls it the little hands. It obviously doesn't translate from Flemish very well. He mm. does this like he has the small hands. He does this move where he goes like <laughs> Which nobody no one can, can see. see. But he like <laughs> rubs his fingers with his thumbs and says he has the small hands. And that's like it obviously doesn't translate, but that's what he talks about when people are just incredible, right, mm. just at doing it. and Probably um, means finesse. Yeah, something mm. like that. Yeah. But – Usually with those people, because I've, you know, I'm fascinated by them and I watch them very closely. That's why I love watching other people train dogs. That's why I'm so mm. excited to be traveling and going, you know, away to see people again who I don't get to hang out with and training dogs and watch them because I love seeing how people handle their dogs. And especially when it's not my job to give any uh, critique or criticism, especially I love it when they're not interested in what I have to say about it. Right. So mm. like they're just people who I'm there training with or observing the training of. That's why I love going to like open field at PSA nationals and stuff the day before. Cause I just like to see what the people do and then see how it pans out. But the very best trainers that I observe 
are the ones who know what peak performance is and and they can read that. Mm. So like we always talk about how you want to reinforce at peak performance, right? And and push the dog to the point where the dog's like, hey, this is the last time you're gonna try this. Right. And mm. then you reinforce and you go, yeah, that was it. And the dog, you know, you get the best version each time. When they're training something, they know when the dog is like gives it true understanding. And they can just read that. There's yep. something that I can't do it. Like I, you know, I'm incrementally getting better at it. But there's people who just come out of the box knowing how to do that. And mm. they can tell, especially like, I'll be controversial. The majority of the really good dog trainers like that are usually balanced trainers and they are exceptional because of their use of pressure. Yep. Right? They know exactly how to manipulate behavior via negative reinforcement because negative reinforcement is a much better learning tool. Dogs will understand better, faster, and for longer when they're taught something with negative reinforcement. And the very best trainers I see are excellent at that skill because they're also excellent at the positive reinforcement part of it, of course, and that's super important. But the way that the majority of people who I've seen who are, yeah, and I'm talking world's best sort of dog trainers, mm. they are exceptional at knowing exactly how much pressure they can put on a dog without the dog dipping into demotivation. Like the dog always knowing, okay, you're pushing me towards something and then removing that pressure. And that pressure is often really subtle. Like a lot of the people who are watching it maybe wouldn't even realize that there is pressure involved, right? And that they're able to manipulate the behaviors of the dog right to the point where they can push the dog into the behavior, leave the dog in the behavior for a period, and then click the dog, you know, like reinforce the dog out of the behavior and create that like maximal understanding because the dog was pushed into the behavior, knew when he wasn't right because he was feel the pressure on the way in, had that moment of like a purgatory sort of feeling like this is it, this is it, but it's not where I'm headed, but I know that I'm in the right position and then reinforced out of the behavior. And those are the people that we see that like train ridiculously fast. They're the kind of people that can get a dog, like a green dog that knows nothing and three weeks later can compete with the dog. Mm. And there's people who I know who, you know, can do that, like get a dog ready for an IGP one in three to six weeks from green to that, because they know how to teach those behaviors. They know the type of dog that's going to be ready for it. And they know exactly how to manipulate the drives of that dog. Do you know, interestingly, just observing a lot of people like that in my own life, I've noticed a lot of those people are actually OCD in their own life. Oh, yeah. I'm not talking funny. I'm talking legit. Yeah. Where their life is very compulsive. Yeah. Well, yeah. a lot of the people who I've observed that are exceptional with the dogs like that mm. are not great dealing with people. Mm. They're often- Full spectrum OCD. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, not necessarily OCD, but there's something where they, they can read and connect with the dog better than they can read and connect with people. Mm. I won't name anyone, but there's plenty of names I could rattle off that you would know and you go like, yeah, oh, yeah absolutely. Totally. Like, there's But I've watched them in their own life. Like I've watched how they're obsessed with neatness and structure and order and everything like that. Like it's, it's almost, and you're right, it's almost like if a human came into this space, they would disrupt my flow mm. and really antagonize my personal space. Mm. I have a video. I may, if people care, I can probably post it, but like of my two kids, Rip was interested in dog training when he was young, but only so much as because I was, you mm. know, so he was just with me and doing it. He was mimicking dad. Yeah. Mm. So he wasn't, he doesn't have an interest in it. Yep. it. Like now that he's seven, he's got his own, so he's not that into it. Mm. I had to have kind of a, a rough conversation with him last week where he wants a puppy. He want like we had some people come over with a Labrador puppy to just do some socialization and he he wants just the dog that will cuddle him. Yep. 
<laughs> what I mean? And I was like, mate, I feel really sorry for you. I appreciate how much you want that, but it's just not going to happen. Mm. Like I'm a professional dog trainer. We can only have two dogs and our dogs are going to be working dogs. Like I, it, yep. it's just not going to be the case, mate. I apologize. I know how much you want that, but I just can't make that happen. Mm. Like I, I don't have the capacity to do that. In future we will, but- Right now, it's impossible for us to do that yep. because the dogs like him. Both both my dogs love him even. But they won't cuddle But they're my dogs. Yeah. And then neither of them are cuddly dogs with mm. anybody really except me. Anyway, but Axel, you can see he's good with dogs. I can see it already. And he, I have a video of him like teasing Remy with a piece of watermelon, right? So like he's like holding it out and showing it to Remy. Remy's like, okay, I'm going to take it. And then Axel takes it away, right? <laughs> and, he, and he keeps him right on the limit of still wanting it. And then gives it to him, right? Yep. Perfectly sort of timed. And the funniest part about it is Remy doesn't even like watermelon. He just <laughs> likes engaging with Axel. So yep. he like takes the watermelon and then spits it out. And mm. it's like, I don't want that. And then Valerie eats it off the floor. It's very funny. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so I think that for sure we observe that in dog training and they are often the very best dog trainers. Other mm. people that have that feel, it can't be replicated. And also, unfortunately, for most of them, they can't pass on the information because they, they don't even know how they're doing it. Mm. They don't even know how it happens. I have a friend that's like an idiot savant with maths. Like he can just, you can give him ridiculous maths problems and he'll just spit out the answer. Yep. When you say to him, show me your work, he can't. He doesn't know how he gets to those results. Yep. And and if you press him for it, he actually gets kind of violent and angry And mm. because he kind of has to then confront the idea that something's happening behind the scenes that he doesn't understand. Yep. He can just punch out the data. And I think a lot of the dog people who are exceptional with the dog, the same is happening. They can't verbalize why they're doing what they're doing. And when you press them for it, it can upset them, right? And that's why a lot of those people often don't get along well with others. And they mm. sort of have quick fallings out with people. Like this is, I think, one of the reasons why we see a lot of the problems we do in the dog training space is sometimes people press people for answers and it seems like they should have an answer, but they don't. Mm. They're just acting on feel. And if you're a person like me who doesn't have that feel and has to learn it, if you keep pushing that person, you'll drive a wedge between you and them because they, you're going to sort of have to have them confront the idea that they don't really know why they're doing what they're doing. It's well, they just don't, happening. They don't know how to be an instructor. Yeah. They know how to train the behavior. Yeah. They just don't know how to instruct. Yeah. And they can't explain it to you. It yeah. would be like trying to explain the color purple to a blind person, right? Yep. Like there, there is no point of reference. I don't, I don't have a way of saying, trying to explain it. Mm. But yeah. Anyway. Hey, before we go to the next question. Yes. I do want to circle back slightly to the e collar one. Yeah. Something sort of. Something bothering you? Well, across my mind is that. What George is probably referring about, because I certainly framed the use of e-collar as a positive punishment type thing, but I acknowledge that he may have been speaking in reference to people who are like forcing compliance of behaviors via the e-collar. And that we do see people kind of fucking up dogs a bit with. Mm. But in average pet dog people, I've never had anybody, I've never had anybody ask for that that isn't into like dog training. Like as a random pet dog person, as he's sort of referring to, I've never had anyone say to me, you know, my dog doesn't heal properly or doesn't go to its bed fast enough or any of those kind of things. And I want to fix that with an e-collar. But I think that has a lot to do with, in Australia, we don't really use e-collars that way. I've sort of felt this way for a while. I think that us in the dog training sports and blah, 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 we think of ourselves as the primary users of e-collars, but we're not. It's the hunting community that is the primary users here and abroad. 
and the hunters in Australia use the e-collar exactly as we sort of explained. Yep. You don't use the hunting here with dogs is mostly like, of course, there is field trials and stuff like that, but that's very niche. Yeah, but they don't need flashy behavior. No, they but, need to stop something. Yeah, that's right. But mm. the hunters here use an e-collar as a stock proofing tool. That's yep. it. You're not going to, you don't do a send away. Yeah, you don't do a send away. You don't do all that kind of stuff with a pig dog. It sits on the back of the ute, it jumps, it lugs or bales, right? Yep. That's it. And so- for us in Australia, culturally, the use of the e-collar is for the most part, like for the non-dog training people, like people, just random people who have a dog, they wouldn't think of using an e-collar in a negative reinforcement sense. Mm. That doesn't really happen much in Australia at all. But in the States, it does because the hunting community is mostly retriever hunt, retriever yep. stuff where they do use a lot of negative reinforcement and that has sort of- Yeah, but they're shaping the behaviours. Like yeah, that's they're, right. They're cultivating different types of movement that, with the dog. That's right. But yeah. so that use of an e-collar is more popular there, like is a negative reinforcement tool. The way that like a trainer would use it, like in a sport sense or whatever, in a Nipopo type sense- that is much more popular in the US than it is here. The best snake avoidance training I've ever seen hands down is with positive punishment with an e-collar. Changed my mind. Yeah. Every other way that I've seen people try to do it, it's just a complete and utter clusterfuck. Yeah, I think there's more to that as well. Like I think that, yes, the positive punishment component is part of it, but I think mm. there's more to it than just the positive punishment. Like the people who – I've never done it, but the people who – I see having really good lasting results also use an element of negative reinforcement. They do. Yes, they do. Away from the snake, not just yeah. the traditional sort of like- Blasting the dog. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. fuck with old mate. That yeah. just puts the dog in the pit with the children's pot. I, I would call it. it more unintentional use of negative reinforcement. It is it is more derived from positive punishment with the element of negative reinforcement in there for sure. Yeah. And then positive reinforcement when the dog comes back. Yeah, I wouldn't say unintentional though, because like the people who are good at it- The people who are good at much, it, they do know. I've still seen it used where people have used it with positive punishment and the effects have just been yeah. fine. But it still bleeds in a negative reinforcement territory, of course. All right. Shall we carry on? We should. I said my piece. All right, Jake, baby back or spare ribs? Uh <sighs> Depends who's cooking them. Yeah, I agree. I, and uh, it depends exactly whether they're pork or beef. Jake, I'm going to need you to come around cooking Well, baby both. back ribs are only pork, aren't they? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I don't know. Jake, I'm going to need you to come around cooking both and I'll do a testing. Yeah, I think spare ribs are – I think what they're probably saying is spare ribs are beef and baby back ribs are pork. Narelle and I do both on the Traeger. We do the pork ribs on the Traeger and they're the three, two, one recipe. Oh, yeah. Which is just exceptional. Mm -hmm. But even our – 12-hour cooked brisket beef ribs. They're like beef butter by the time oh, they come off. You're bragging now, sir. Yeah. All right. Charlotte Mers says, finding the right breeder for a competitive bite sport dog. Beyond the obvious health testing, titling, and basics we all know for finding a reputable breeder, how do you decide which one is right? How do you thoroughly vet, especially when you are looking out of state and don't have strong connections in the sports or breeds you're looking at? It feels like a struggle often because you want to hedge your bets as much as you can and really hope you can find a dog with good nerves, solid temperament and healthy can be livable to a degree and still have the genetics to be competitive. There's never going to be a breeder anywhere in the world that 100% gets it right all the time. Sometimes for them, it's a bit of potluck as well. I think I put a post in the the canine paradigm discussion group a while ago where there was a professor talking about how genetics is a mosaic of a lot of history that is flowing through various family members for hundreds of years in your family. And the same could be said with dogs as well. There are people who are very pedigree researched and they do know 
what they are looking for and they do know what function and form these dogs have and have had through the Siren Dam through three, four, five, even longer generations. They are very good at shaping and trying to hone in what they believe is going to be the best of that family tree. It doesn't mean that entire litter is going to be completely comprised of that because the remaining pups of that litter are still going to have that mosaic element of some of the offshoots of great-great-grandfather or great-grandmother or an uncle or whatever it may be. It's still a roll of the dice sometimes. What I would suggest to people if they're looking for working dog people is A, somebody who does do their homework. They are researched on health of the dogs as well because it's not just about the behavior of dogs. It's a longevity that needs to be planned in this as well. There's no point, and believe me, I know people who have bred dogs, working dogs, that are proven biters, but their hips are fucked and Mm. their hips and elbows are just trash all throughout their history. But they'll completely override that just because they can produce biting dogs. And they still believe that that's an ethical thing to sell and trade in those dogs, even though it's probably between 70 and 90% that they're going to produce dogs with shit hips and elbows. How do you avoid someone like that? I guess primarily what you've got to do is look at the integrity of what's been produced and look at the longevity of animals as well, if you possibly can. I don't like overusing the word integrity, but it really is a matter of integrity sometimes to make sure that it's an industry-supported people that you're going to for looking for those dogs, whether they be you know, a law enforcement serving dog, a sporting type of dog, a field retrieving type of dog, whatever it may be, a detection or, you know, a nose works type of dog that you're looking for, that will have those characteristics that are in line with what you want. Ask around. The senior community usually know who those dogs are or who those breeders are who are producing those dogs. Don't be impulsive. That's one strong area where I try and advise people to pump their brakes a little bit is, When people are in the market for a dog, don't ever get hoodwinked into believing that that dog is the last one that's going to come up because a lot of times, you know, people have these special dogs that they held Mm. back for themselves. That's an old wives' tale most of the time. That's just the last dog in the litter generally. Yeah, it's a leftover. It's a leftover, but they create FOMO around it and then people believe, I have to have this dog. It may have come from a good line of people and you may luck in, but most likely you'll luck out. This will be an underdriven dog, a dog that isn't as exceptional as its as its siblings was, and you'll get something that you'll be disappointed with if it's for a working role or some capacity of that. So I feel the two things that you need to do is A, don't be impulsive, and B, do your homework. Mm, I agree. And I think doing the homework looks like actually contacting people who are involved in the sport you want to do. Absolutely. I've had – Loads of people contact me and say, you know, I'm going to get this dog from this bloodline and the breeder said that the dog will be suitable for PSA or insert sport here. And unless they're doing that, they don't know shit. Mm. And they're not lying either. Like a lot of the breeders, you know, like I guess you have to choose your words carefully, but a lot of the breeders, the bloodlines nerds are, you know, they don't really know what they're talking about with the dogs, right? So like they're relying on completely genetic traits and and very often I think once a dog has a really high level of training on it, it can be really hard to tell what's a genetic trait and what's not, mm. right? I think as well, we see that quite a bit where the more training a dog has, 
the harder it is to assess the raw genetics of that dog because he's no longer acting in line with what Mother Nature tells him to do. He's doing what he has been trained to do given the impulses. And to find out who that dog really is then requires quite a lot of pressure, you know, a lot of testing to have the training kind of fall apart a little bit and have the dog you know, show himself for who he is. Yeah, because it's a fusion of both. Yeah, of course. Mm. And so, but like training doesn't pass on, genetics do. Yep. So yes and no, because training will start to form part of the epigenetics picture at some point in time. Yeah, but how fast a dog downs is an indicator of how well he was trained to do that. That's that's true. You know, and so I think, you know, a lot of nerve issues can be covered with training. Mm -hmm. And so they can be exposed for sure, but they need to be exposed. Mm. And people are not going to expose the nerve issues of their own dogs without it being some sort of subjective test rather than an, uh, sorry, other way around, without it being some sort of objective test rather than some sort of subjective test. Mm. So my advice to anybody you're looking for as well, and Charlotte specifically mentions a bite sport dog, but I think this relates to anything is you know, any sport is that if the breeder is not involved in that sport with that bloodline, then their advice on the suitability of that dog for that sport is as good as a random person's on the street mm. because they don't necessarily really know what that sport is. Now they need to be involved in it presently or recently. Otherwise, very often I, th- I think that we give breeders a bad rap, you know, and we shouldn't do that. They get enough fucking heat from other people. But I think very often they can be wrong. There's a lot of kennel blindness and that sort of thing. And I think that they can be like, they would pass a lie detector. They're not lying when they tell you what their dogs are and the suitability of their dogs, but they're also not right either. They can also be, you know, inaccurate in what they're saying. It goes back to my point about car drivers before. They really believe in their heart yeah. and soul that they're above average. That's right. But mm. if we started putting people to the test, like you said they did, or comparing them to each other, then you start to see who actually is good, right? Yep. There's a way of determining that. So if you are interested in doing a bite sport or any sport of that for that matter with a particular dog, is then the only breeders I would be interested in looking at are the ones that are competing in that sport or similar. Mm. Because like I said, they just don't know. And, and I think a lot of people will tell you about how their dogs, you know, go to police and military and stuff like that, but they still don't necessarily know how those dogs perform on the street. They're not necessarily getting that information back. Mm. And so they might be producing great puppies that go on to, you know, be sold, but they don't know how many of from that litter necessarily pass. And they don't know, maybe they get information on, you know, how many pass their certification and go on to work the streets, but then they're not there at the engagements on the streets. They're mm. not seeing the dogs actually apprehend people. They're not seeing the dogs track. They're not seeing how the dog lives in its crate. They're not getting that, that throughput. So like, in my opinion, if you really want to be successful in the sports, then you should be getting a dog off someone who's successful in the sports. And that's why I think that that's kind of the whole point of the sports. That's why that's a big piece of why they exist is to prove the suitability of the dog. Mm. And I think this is, you know, this is why people were so upset the other week when the SV banned stick hits in the IGP, because the whole point of removing that is that's a big topic to bite off. But a big part of it is a lot of the dogs can't handle the stick hits. Like a lot of the weaker dogs and people that need to title their dogs in order to be able to sell the puppies, the dogs can't handle it. They don't have the nerve. Mm. And so if you've got a breeder that is like pro removing the stick hits, then your chances are your dog is not going to be suitable. Mm. And so I think when I was looking to import a dog earlier, I bought a dog off Sean and Janet 
I know the bloodline. I've worked Danny. I've worked Zika. You know, I've, I've worked the parents. I've seen other offspring of similar matings. I've seen them title their dogs. I've seen the dogs young. Janet's obviously one of the best trainers in the game. So she can make a dog look like something that it's not, but she also wouldn't put the work into a dog that wasn't worth having the, the work put into. And she wouldn't breed a dog that like she's keeping those dogs for herself. She keeps her own dog. She breeds for herself in order to be able to compete with. And there's others in the litter. So they got to go to somebody else. Right. Mm. So that's exactly the kind of breeder that you want to go to. You want to go to somebody who is like, I am doing this mating because I have a goal. And that goal is the same as yours. If you're looking to get a dog to compete in that sport with those people, that mating was done in order for them to get a dog to compete with, but there's going to be 10 in the litter. So there's nine that are for sale. Mm. And so that's your best bet of getting a dog that's actually suitable and finding somebody who is successful in the sport, or at least has, you know, been involved in the sport for a long time. They don't have to be national champion. You know what I mean? Like, like Janet is, you, they don't have to be the best, but they need to be involved in it so that they know what it is. They know what the pressure actually is. They know where the, where the pressure comes from and, and how the sort of traits that are going to be best for that dog and, and how that dog should move and how that dog's going to be put together, all the sorts of things that go into it. If it's a particular bite sport you want to do, there is a breeder that is doing that sport and has been doing that for as long as the sport has been around or they've been, you know, into dogs and has got multiple uh, titles on that dog. They've got an established bloodline that's known within that. This is one of the things that sort of, you know, we struggle with here in Australia is because not too many breeders here, especially in the Malinois, right? Because it's a fairly new breed. We're mm. talking sort of 30 years. 20, it, I reckon, yes, 30, but I would say 15 to 20 full on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's really only one established bloodline and even they're outcrossing now. Mm. So when it, people come to me, and this is why I hate giving advice on, in fact, unless you're a close friend, I'm not giving you advice on where to get a dog. I'll happily give you advice on dogs that you show me. Like if people want to say, what do you think of this puppy? I can give you an objective answer on what I think of that puppy. But when people are like, where should I go to get a dog? I'm like, roll the fucking dice because people are outcrossing. So there's mm. no way to know what's going to happen. Yep. There's so few people that are repeating matings because everybody's still trying to find what is right. And and now in Australia, there's some fucking good dogs. We're, we're in a good position. Things have really changed in the last, you know, probably 10 years. Mm. Things have really changed in Malinois circles. This, maybe even in the last five years, things have really changed. Yep. But so you can get some good dogs here, but you're rolling the dice and you're rolling the dice on the whole litter as well, because there's still a lot of genetic diversity in the, the yeah, matings. Yeah, that's that, that mosaic happen. that's still coming out. Yeah. Mm. Whereas you go somewhere like Cook Eyes, an 80 year old third generation Belgian kennel, they're basically cloning dogs at this point, mm. right? Like the genetic diversity is gone and you can count on getting they're just reproducing the same dogs because it's a, you know, it's a well-established bloodline. You're like going to Pat Nolan for a field retrieving dog. Exactly. Mm. Right. And so that exists all over the world. Mm. They, they are around and even here they're right, you know, less now, but you can put your hands onto those dogs that are established bloodlines. It's harder here, but it exists, but then you know what you're going to get or, mm. or you're just at a much higher chance of it. Yep. The key for me is that if the breeder isn't doing the thing that you want to do with the dog, their opinion on the dog's ability to do that thing isn't very worthwhile at hearing. Yep. They don't need to be current at it, but they need to be fairly recently involved in it to really actually know what it is. Because mm. some of the things you hear people say, like you hear people from the IGP community give reference to what happens in PSA and they don't really know, right? Mm. Because they, they're not involved in it. They just see the odd video here and there. They don't really know what's involved in it. So their opinion on what it is, is not accurate. And similarly, the other way around, right? So like- 
those exact traits that you're looking for in a dog and the way that it thinks, the way that it feels, the way that it moves, all those sorts of things, like that real minutia that you're going to need to want to understand if you, you know, this is your dog and you're going to, you want to compete, you want to do well, your only chance of getting the accurate information on that for the specific sport you're going to play is if your breeder is involved in that sport. Yep. And I think this is why we as sports people, people involved in this should be, you know, pushing breeders to be doing this, mm. right? And and I think even if like there's a lot of breeders who just don't have the time or the skill set or the interest in doing that, but they should be placing dogs with people who can. And they're like that that has happened here in Australia. There's people who have offered or asked me and others just like, hey, can you take one of these dogs? Because I want it proved. I want to see how it goes. I don't have the skill set to do it or the time or the ability, you know, like blah, blah, blah. There's lots of reasons why a breeder might not be able to compete but they should be placing the dogs with people who do so that they can be like, they can be seen to be doing so the dog needs to achieve a certain level of success. And I think what we've seen here in Australia is a lot of people will give reference to how many dogs they're placed in police and whatever like that. But that doesn't mean shit that that really doesn't mean fuck all because they don't then know how those dogs performed on the street. Like selling the dogs to a dog to the cops, congratulations. Like they buy a lot of fucking dogs. I want to know, did he pass his course? How did he go on his course? And did he, how's he go, had live bites? Has he, how's his engagements gone? Did he handle pressure? How's he track when he knows that like after he's had his first bite, how did he track for his second bite? You know, all those sorts of things that for sport people, we would have beers uh, and we would sit around and we'd discuss this. Mm. It's one of the things that, you know, when I go to these PSA training days that we're doing the decoy days, part of the best part of it is the sitting around afterwards and the whole people involved in the dog community bullshitting about the breeds and the dogs and talking objectively and saying like, oh, you know, like, like I talk about all the time, like Remy's for me, mentally, he's a perfect dog. There's nothing I would change about him mentally, but his body's fucked. Mm. And I tell everyone that. And, and we know like, okay, like don't breed from him. He's a mess. Mm. People need to know that in the community because people, you wouldn't know that to look at him. I mean, you'd see it now, he limps nonstop. But as a young dog, he's ticking all the boxes. Everything's there, he looks great. Yep. You, people don't know that unless we sit down and we talk to each other. And I've held on to him for six years and we get to see like what really happened along the way. But if I'd sold him to the army like I had intended to when he's 18 months old, he's gone. No one would know. Even probably I wouldn't know what happened genetically. Mm. And maybe you keep breeding from, you know, so that there's all these things. If, if people aren't breeding the dog themselves, competing, seeing it through all the way, or putting it with someone very close to them that can give them the real answers, they don't really know. And therefore you should probably shouldn't buy a dog from that person. If you want to be successful in a particular sport. Interestingly, a very good friend of my employer's, he was reaching out to me to buy a certain type of breed. So I sent it, I set him up with a few people to go and talk to and evaluate for himself how he felt about it and what he was looking at. Interestingly enough, six months later, he came back to me and said, what a bunch of the greatest <laughs> I've ever met in my fucking life. So much so he was horrified about how godlike they were behaving, how secretive they were, how yeah. temperamental they were about collaborating with the rest of the community. He yeah. just said, fuck this, I'm going offshore and went and visited old bloodlines overseas and purchased a dog off them. Yeah. He just said it was just a horrible experience trying to talk to these people. He said they're supposed to be ambassadorial of the breed. He said, yet all they want is people to worship them, throw themselves at their feet, take their advice as absolute gospel, not let ask them any questions. That was confronting to hear because I sent him to these people to speak to him. Now, that's one man's opinion, right? Mm. That's one man's opinion. But I think the way that you approach people is also important. We don't know how he approached them. I don't. 
I wasn't there and you're exactly right. He doesn't seem like the sort of person who would approach them in a confrontational manner. And the people that he did approach overseas were very like a a hard-nosed old school people who you would least expect that they would get along with. Mm, Can I play devil's advocate? Sure, of course. You've talked about how like when you were selling puppies here that, you know, there was an element of pushing people away in order that to see who was really interested. And I spoke to him about that as well. Yeah. I told him all the mind games and the psychology that I've used in establishing who should have one of the puppies and who would fall apart if I actually gave them one. We spent a bit of time talking about that. He came to me to ask me, he said, do you still breeding? Do you have semen? I said, no, we're not at the moment. You know, we've got semen stored, but we haven't been involved in it for a while. We haven't got the resources, the commitment to do it. And what we were breeding, we weren't happy with where it was going at that point in time. We weren't establishing what we were trying to. All of these points that you brought up was part of the long conversation that we had about it. It was just surprising that, and he did give me some a few positives, like he told me what was positive. So it's not an entirely bad picture, but it was just surprising to hear what he got told and and how far it sometimes even derailed off buying dogs in, and developed into politically beating up other people and clubs and so forth mm. through breeders. Like you can't train here and you're not allowed to train with this person and you're yeah. forbidden to go there and so forth. I mean, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah. Who are some of these people? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when people bought dogs off us, the only thing that I told them to do is don't fuck your dogs over. Here is a list of things for building a social environment for the dog and the minimalistic things that you need to do for training. The rest of it was up to them. Whoever you want to go for a trainer – People that I don't like and don't respect, they were training their dogs with them and they were happy. Yeah. You know, but as long as they they and the dog were fulfilled and they, the dog wasn't a menace in the community and eating their children, I was absolutely fine with that. No problems at all. Yeah. And that's what he felt was a very confrontational portion of meeting these people and, and trying to develop some form of community and then feeling that the only salvation I have is going offshore mm. and did and bought a dog. Mm. Yeah. At yeah. great expense, probably quadruple what he would have spent here and then flights on top of that to go over and meet them and view mm. the dogs and, you know, select a dog from them overseas and so forth. That was insane. Mm. Yeah, it's not an uncommon story. Even outside of the working dog space, I know that it can be difficult to get a dog, mm. but I usually sort of explained it. Like I've never, I, I haven't encountered that. I personally have never encountered it, but I, I've heard from other people. Mm. And I've sourced a lot of dogs for a lot of people over time. I hate doing it now, and, like, now it's something I really I tend not to do. There's exceptions. Of course, I've, I've done it just recently, like three weeks ago. But, but I prefer not to do it. But I've never had that because I usually – know the, how the conversation can go with the breeder, right? Like, so when I encounter, I, I sort of give, like I kind of grill breeders a little bit. And I think that all the ones that I've ever spoken to actually like that, mm. you know, they're like, because I'm not talking to shit ones either, right? So like I, I'll do the research and find the right people. I still, every now and again, I spoke to him just the other day. In fact, I posted about it in our group because he had puppies. I still speak to Alex who bred Val. Yep. And I didn't know him from Bar Soap beforehand. And it's not like we're old Chinas or anything like that. I spoke to him every couple of years. I'll just sort of catch up with him and, you know, something will come up and yeah. it's worth talking to him about. But, you know, I sort of grilled him a fair bit because I didn't know who he was. I didn't know whether he was a, you know, I'd done my research in that I knew that he'd produced Springer litters in the past and that they'd gone on to work, but I didn't know much about him. 
And I gave him the third degree about, you know, how well do you look after the dogs? And he gave me the third degree about who the fuck do you think you are getting this dog? And then we're like, okay. Both of us have met in the middle and realized like, okay, we're in this together, right? Like this is where we're both in this to get a good dog, right? But for sure, like I've heard plenty of stories about people having a lot of issues with breeders for mm. sure. But I think also, you know, like I can sympathize how difficult it is. I think that a lot of breeders, I think we take for granted how hard it is for some people who to pass on puppies. There's no doubt about that. And I have firsthand experience in it. Listening to you with your experience before about, you know, you grilling Alex and him grilling you. I had a lady that she sent me a survey and it was horrendously long. She followed up with a phone call and she said, you must think I'm the greatest asshole you've ever met, right? And I said, mm, on the contrary, I'm actually impressed that you went to this level of detail and that you're researching what you want to buy. And I said, I don't think I've got the dog for you based on what you want. She said, oh, really, really? And I said, yeah, really. And I said, she said, I hope you didn't see this in a negative fashion. I said, not at all. I actually didn't. I enjoyed the read and I thought if only the rest of the people that contacted me put half the effort in, it would be an easier yeah. story. And I said, just based on what I feel that you want, I don't have that dog for you. Mm. It doesn't exist in this litter. Let me put it that way. Mm. I think she was a little hurt that I didn't have the dog for her, but also respected the fact that I was honest with her and mm. didn't try and flo then flog her a dog. So I said, no, I'm not perturbed by the fact that you went and prepared this and it's significantly longer conversation than anybody else has ever put together. Mm but it would be remiss of me to try and give you a dog and then try and get you to work through the shortfalls. And then you go away and think you just either placated me or you set me up to fail or just gave me a dog mm. just off the back that I impressed something upon you. And I thought that's not what I want to do. Mm. You know, it's a tricky one. Like I've known a couple of breeders, you know, I've had this conversation with them that there's a, a thing about when you really are trying to improve a breed or you really are trying to establish a, a bloodline, how hard it is to place the puppies because you you need to know which ones you're going to breed from. And mm. and as we know full well in the Superdog program, blah, 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 you can't tell shit from puppies, right? Mm. Like you, you really, like you're shooting in the dark. You, throw, you may as well wear a blindfold and throw a fucking a, a dart at a wall, right? Until the bloodline is established and then you can start to see, oh, well, the puppies have these kind of traits. But as you're trying to build it, you don't know where that goes. And I've had a couple of really interesting conversations with people who've sort of confessed to me the difficulty they have parting with those dogs and how the trouble in, you know, like I said, oh, but you know, like someone like me who knows what they're doing, they're like, no, you're the worst because you'll cover the problems. Like we don't really know, like a really good trainer. And if you put, you'd, you'd think that putting dogs with really good trainers is what a lot of breeders want. Mm. But if there's, if they're going to put it in with like breeding rights, cause they want access to be able to dog, they're trying to establish a bloodline. You kind of want someone that's not going to do a lot, right? Yep. Cause you need to see what really happens with this dog not with someone like me that is going to put in all the effort to build it. They want to see what happens naturally as well as someone like me who has potential to overdo it in, in certain instances, you know, mm. there's like, like it's possible that I put too much pressure on a dog young and, or, you know, like a decoy does working with me or whatever, the dog's going to have a lot of experiences that are going to, you know, change the outcome of where it goes. And now no, no longer are they able to look at that dog's raw genetics and say, well, this is what he turned out to be. Mm. It is blurred. It's tainted by a lot of training. And now it's like, well, is he built or was he born? And so they end up sort of 
not wanting to sell them. And this is how you get people that hoard dogs and all that kind of stuff and end up keeping whole litters for no reason and have 150 dogs in their fucking house that they didn't place because they're stuck in this like, well, I need to keep them all to know which was the best one in order to continue to breed and continue to propagate the bloodline. Mm. It comes from a really good place. They're really driven to achieve something noble, but the path to doing that is not clear. Right? Mm. It's not obvious and it's certainly not easy. It's a tricky one. It is a very tricky one. I think that's all the questions we can get through today. Yeah, let's wind it up there. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, pull your AirPods out, put in somebody else's ear. It's lick the, it first. It's the only way. Lick it. Oh, Glenn. <laughs> Actually, don't do that. The Albanese government is just like extending all the harassment laws in Australia now. Like, Are they? You, oh, yeah. If you do something like that, you'll be written up. I mean, you probably should be. <laughs> like, let's be real. <laughs> if, somebody, if somebody you were sitting next to on the bus, or I don't know why you're on the bus, but you are. Put a dripping wet ear pod into pulls my ear. Pulls their ear pod out, licks it, yep. and jams it into your ear and says, mate, you have to hear this podcast. Yeah. I feel like you would be okay with that being illegal. Me? Yeah. If somebody did that to me, they'd be hospitalized. Well, sir, that's assault. So, well, it's not because they assaulted me first. I'm defending myself against them. That's right. So don't do it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's why people should go with the boombox. Yeah. I think, in all honesty, if you want to support the show, the best way to do that is tell someone in real life. Yep. That's the best thing you can do. It turns out real life conversations, they're more meaningful than online ones. Well, just do what I do. Get one of the, our stickers and put it in a urinal somewhere. Yeah. I've got that. several all, all over <laughs> Outback New South Wales. Yeah, you could do that. Yeah, I mean, just you could use your mouth. If you, you could, go to Grey Gums Cafe and you go and you are a gentleman and you visit the latrine, you will see a canine paradigm sticker. And I started a trend because there was nothing on that urinal wall now. Now there's like 20 of them. Oh, really? Oh, really? Yeah. I asked him, I did ask him, the owner of the place, I said, is it okay? I didn't just randomly go and do it. Yeah. She said, yep, go and do what you want. All right. Well, support the show by telling someone. Another really cool way you could support the show Mm. is with some hot, wet, stinky cash. Oh, yes. Hot, wet, stinky cash. Hey, I believe our resident sugar mama, Barbara DeGroote, Gave us another great big whopping amount of cash. She's, she's amazing, isn't she? Oh, my God. I, what an absolute advocate for us. She is. She's a beautiful lady. She's into Rottweilers, so that makes her that automatically puts her on a higher pedestal than most people already. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. according to you. According to me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, Barbara, thank you sincerely. I know, and I, I do want to say this because I don't want other people to feel left out of this conversation as well. Obviously, Barbara, you've gone above and beyond what the majority of people will do, but I also know that other people have given as much as they can as well. Yeah. So there is hordes of appreciation. As I said last time, or as we stated last time, anytime somebody commits to our show or increases their spend on the show, an email gets sent to us from Patreon. We know who you are. It, it has your name come up in the email that, you know, like you increased your spend from this to this or you're a first-time contributor to the Patreon. Thank you. Our Patreon numbers are starting to come back up again. That's great. There was a bit of a lull for a period of time. We put a survey out. Uh, Tenua has been very kind enough to come in and, and I mean, she's just a a great project manager in in so many ways. And she really started to get involved in it. She's trying to help us out with the website and everything like that, which is just fantastic. I can't say enough kind words about Tenor and her assistant. She throws above 100%, easily above 100%. With the responsibilities that she already has in her job, 
and what she has thrown into just a very, very short time of, of doing this. She surveys, she tries to find out she's doing anything she can to help. So thank you that we have a community of people that are investing in this hobby, I guess. It's a hobby. Well, let me rephrase investing in our community. Yeah. The canine paradigm is a community and it's extended beyond Pat and I. When you look in the discussion group, there are multiple fields of people from all different skill sets, all contributing all at once. I love that. Yeah, me too. And I love the fact, I just love when people send me a screenshot on Instagram of how much they've enjoyed it listening in the car and you know, like they're getting sad that they're almost to the end of binging on it or anything like that. That means a lot, you know. I hope you've been enjoying my musical repertoire that I've been going back into some old school when I've been mixing it with music on on the story. On the story. So I've been finding some pretty good old school rock anthems and so forth or just old anthems that, that people don't listen to anymore or so I should say that. They listen to them but they, they're songs that – I love listening to when I was younger, even now I just love them. I think what a great song. I got an email the other day. Like it's fun to, you know, we're five years into this, right? Yeah. And people will listen to a, you know, a new episode or whatever, decide they like it and go back and, you know, start at the start and work their way through. Yes. And what cracks me up is people will email me and want to like get stuck into me about like, oh, well, on episode 32, you said this. And I was like, oh, fuck off. There's a different person. That's right. <laughs> like, I don't, don't hold me accountable to anything I said five years ago. But didn't we say that? Yeah. Haven't yeah, we said yeah, that multiple yeah, yeah, in multiple yeah, yeah. streams that we've changed yeah. and we reserve the right to change the way we think? Because people do that to me too. They say, hey, man, you flip-flopped on a conversation. Like you have changed or you have modified what you said. I said, of course, motherfucker. What kind of dickhead would you be if you did it? Absolutely. <laughs> like if, if better nope. information is presented to me, why would I want to remain yep. nope. steadfast? I said it out loud one time and now I'm, I'm beholden to that opinion for the remainder of my life I in am spite of this more, new information. I am more than happy to flip-flop on things <laughs> when I am proven wrong or better material is yep. presented. But, yes, if you want to support the show, the best way to do that is Patreon. We appreciate everybody mm. that donates anything in there and we also appreciate the people who don't because they can't. One thing I'll admit, I know I've talked about on the show before is I have weird problems with numbers. And so I don't really look at the numbers because I get crazy obsessed with numbers. And so I don't really look at it, but I appreciate everybody that donates anything in there very, very much. Well, we're going to try and get the studio off the ground. Um, We're going to have to. Everything helps. Yeah. We'll have to figure something out about that. If you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is jump into the Facebook discussion group. I know I say it all the time, but at some point we'll come up with an email list that's been on my bullet journal. I keep migrating it forward every week that I'll, I'll do it, but I will do it at some point. And if you want to get in contact with us directly, you should shoot us an email. We are info at the canineparadigm.com. Goodbye. (laughs) 